Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Joshua Glessing shares the unique path that has landed him the role of VP of Strategy at the Haslam Group, which is the parent company for the Cleveland Browns, Columbus Crew, and other sport-affiliated businesses. We learn how a late pivot during his college days was a life-altering decision, how he transitioned from a public finance role to an advisory role at Goldman Sachs, as well as the one piece of advice he has for younger folks trying to find their way. Enjoy. Josh, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. So it'd be great if you could just uh, give the listeners a quick summary of your bio. Sure. So, uh, you know, really high level, originally from Wisconsin, uh, went to Indiana University. Uh, at the onset of my time in Bloomington, I thought I was going to ultimately go to law school. Pivoted my junior year, didn't totally know what I wanted to do, but, but knew that I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, so I had degrees in public affairs and sociology and you know, ultimately leveraged the, the public affairs with a, with a focus on public finance uh, to a job at a company called PFM Group, which is the largest advisor to states and local governments uh, for large-scale capital projects. And did that for a few years in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then they moved me to, to L.A. Um, and by chance worked on a couple of stadium and arena projects for local and state government and sort of learned how municipalities contributed dollars to private sports stadiums. Then uh, Goldman Sachs ultimately asked me if I wanted to send the other side of the table uh, represent sports teams on a number of different things, but a big focus was uh, new stadium and arena projects, the financing of them, the public-private partnerships of them, and then in some instances, other parts of, of sports and entertainment. Mm-hmm. So, so went to, to Goldman in the summer of 2013, uh, did that in, in the sports practice within the investment bank for six years, and then about a year ago, began representing the Haslam family, Jimmy and Dee Haslam. Jimmy is the CEO of Pilot Flying J Travel Stations uh, on their acquisition of the Columbus Crew. They already owned the Cleveland Browns uh, up the street from, from Columbus. And this past April, May, made a passive comment to the COO of the Cleveland Browns about at some point wanting to move back to the Midwest where I'm originally from, where my wife is originally from. And that, that 
quickly turned into an, are you serious? And I said, yes. Uh, so moved here to Columbus, Ohio uh, this past summer, where I'm now the, the vice president of strategy for the Haslam Sports Group. Haslam Sports Group is the parent company of the Cleveland Browns, Columbus crew, and then our to be rolled out uh, ventures platform that'll invest in sports, entertainment, health, wellness, other things that we feel touch our business of as sports operators in some way, shape, or form. Great. Really interesting background. Definitely. So, and then a big part of what I'm doing right now and why I came over when I came over with the Columbus crew, as you can see, I'm at the background right now. I'm, I'm in what was once the crown jewel of, of Major League Soccer is the first MLS-specific stadium in the country. Uh, it is now the oldest MLS-specific stadium in the country. So we broke ground in October on a brand new $300 million stadium in downtown Columbus. And we also developed the real estate around the, the new stadium. So that was a big part of the reason why even though the, the Columbus Browns organization is a, a much larger scale than the Columbus crew and a lot of the, the executives and ownership are spending more time in, in Cleveland for, for relatively obvious reasons, uh, we've got a, a very substantial project here taking place for the Columbus crew in downtown Columbus. Curious how many people, uh, what's the capacity of the stadium? The new stadium, 20,000 people. Nice. Which is, you know, it's similar to, to the current stadium, which I'm sitting in right now. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference is the overall footprint and size of the building is, is going to be much, much larger. There really isn't a, a great premium offering in this building. It's, it's located on the fairgrounds, which, you know, if you look at it on a map, doesn't necessarily look like a, a terrible location adjacent to Ohio State's campus. Mm -hmm. However, uh, the ingress egress out of the stadium site is difficult. There's nothing really to do around the stadium before or after a match. And, and during a match, there just isn't a premium experience, which people are becoming accustomed to in the business of sports. So, so we'll be talking about a building that's got a footprint in terms of square footage that's, that's almost double, if not more, than this current building, even though capacity is, is actually the same. Yeah, very cool. So all right, let's start all the way back for your story. So you, I like the bat. So, and then we can get a little bit of sports talk. Once we get through your, your career, maybe we can get a little sports talk going. Sure. <laughs> no, I, in terms of just being a, you said you're a, you're a political science um, or sorry, a public affairs major. Yeah. So tell me that, when did you think, hey, I'm going to be working on these projects? Like what, what, how did you end up at PFM specifically? Was it somebody you knew? Was it a friend of a friend networking? And, you know, you were graduating in 08, which is, was a horrible time. So tell me a little bit about that job search, um, the struggle, if there was any, or was it just, you know, you, you got lucky? Uh, you know, a, a number of very, very fortunate turns. It was, you know, never part of the master plan. And it was one of the things I struggled with while I was at Goldman. And I talked to a lot of, of young people who it was always a part of their master plan. And you, you meet someone who's like, I'm a step behind. I didn't know when I was 14 years old that I wanted to work on Wall Street and I was never prepared. I didn't go to a target school. I didn't, I didn't have the, the liberal arts degree or the, or the right. undergraduate business degree, degree. I'll never make it. So for me, like I said, I, at first I thought I was going to go to law school and public affairs and sociology was the right mix to ultimately take the LSATs and, and go to law school. Um, 
but when I learned more and more about what lawyers did, decided I had no real desire to be a lawyer. I went to my counsel at IU and, and said, Hey, what's the, what's the right move for me? And uh, she asked what I ultimately wanted to do. I said, you know, I'm not totally sure. I, I think I want to work in business or finance. And at that point, I still didn't totally know what that meant. Right. And her guidance was, well, if you want to switch to the Kelly of School of Business, it's going to cost you real time. It's going to cost you at least a, an additional year at school. And that just wasn't on the cards for me. So what I ultimately did what, is why I it was in, just uh, money. Yeah, money. It was all driven by money. You know, yeah. I, was, I was taking out loans to, to, to get through school mm -hmm. uh, and it just wasn't practical to, to take another year's worth of debt out uh, or time. And, and at that point, I think I was ready to work, even though I didn't necessarily know what that meant. Right. So the guidance from the, from the counselor and, you know, I look back on it and it was such a simple thing, but it, it really transformed my life in, in a lot of ways was to change my focus within the school of public environmental affairs to uh, a public finance focus. And I find out years later that Indiana is one of only a, a couple schools in the country that has a program focused on public finance. And it just so happens that it was in the school I was already in. Yeah. And I said, that's perfect. Not necessarily because I wanted to work in public finance, but because I wanted to put the word finance on my resume. <laughs> and that was the, the sole purpose and focus of it at the time was to put the word finance on my resume. What, what, year, I, what year was this discussion where this, this kind of pivotal discussion? So this is, this is second semester 07. So junior year, almost yeah. end of junior year. So did you have time to get an internship that junior? So it, it's funny. I hustled and it was one of, it is, a, you know, I, I, there aren't many things I can complain about my time at Indiana University. Um, I had an unbelievable experience. Looking back on it, I wouldn't have changed anything. Uh, however, not being in the Kelly School of Business, I didn't have access to all of the resources that come with the Kelly School of Business. And for the people in the School of Business, it's, it's very great because they keep other people out who could be competing for jobs and it really right. helps credentialize you know, that undergraduate program. But for me, I couldn't use it. So I just started hustling and I was, you know, submitting my resume into to the black hole. When um, you say resources, was this like a mock interview? Like, what was this like? A investment banking club, stuff like that? Stuff like that, but I also couldn't apply to jobs because you had to have certain undergraduate degrees just to apply through on campus finance business related roles. That's annoying. That's annoying. And I literally couldn't do it. I could see the jobs and I could see who was going to be on campus. Uh, but I couldn't click apply. So I couldn't even be considered for those on-campus interviews because I didn't have an accounting degree or a finance degree. Did you ever think to actually go to the like information sessions and then just like work your, work your way in through back channels? Because I've heard kids doing that who aren't in the business school. In, in hindsight, I should have. Uh, well, in hindsight, I should have done everything the, the way that I did it. Um, <laughs> right. I, I struggled uh, in, a, in a very, very meaningful way. And, but I was just black hole, black hole, black hole. Yeah, and this is just all mine anywhere you could find. Yeah. This was a, a so I ultimately did uh, an internship at what at the point was countrywide. Uh, it later became Bank of America. Uh, I had a verbal job offer um, afterwards, but then all of the the job offers to the, the group that was going to at that point in time the 
countrywide headquarters in Calabasas, Los Angeles, uh, they were verbal offers, never a formal offer. Those were all reneged. So I found myself scrambling. Uh, my this, senior this year. Is now, yeah, this is now senior year. When, now senior get, year. when was it clear that it was reneged that they were not going to be able to extend it? In December. Oh, great. So you only have about five months before you graduate. And I, and I was coasting along where everyone else is panicking trying to find a job. I'm like, I'm good. That stinks for you guys. Enjoy your interviews. Uh, so then I, I panicked. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I had student loans coming that were going to you know, start to need to be paid back. Uh, and I scrambled. So I basically, and I don't honestly don't remember who told me to do this, but someone gave me the guidance that, oh, have you looked at jobs in public finance? And at this point, I've got a focus in public finance, and I still don't totally know what that means. Uh, so I basically, you know, go to the, the internet, go to the Google machine and start looking for jobs in public finance. And that's when I, I realize that as people are seeing my, my resume, it's like, oh, this guy has a focus in public finance. He must actually love municipal finance because <laughs> who goes out of their way to go to the school that has a focus in public finance? So right. this guy must be serious about, you know, municipal bonds. And of so there's, some, there's actually something to be said about that. Like you had like, it was so niche. It was so niche that people were like, well, we got to give this guy a shot. We got to bring him in just because yeah. he has the public finance on his resume. Like what undergrad is like, well, I guess it, if, Ke you know, if Kelly has that focus, there's got to be other kids that you were competing with that had a public. Finance. Kelly doesn't have the focus. I wasn't in Kelly. I mean, not Kelly, sorry. The Indiana, in Indiana that has yeah. the public finance. Other people have it, but those people want to work in public affairs, local got government. It not actual finance. Yeah, they want to, they want to work in the department of finance and infrastructure for the city of Bloomington or the city of Indianapolis. Fair. Okay. Which listen, if, if things had gone differently, there was a scenario in which that was the easier path for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I applied for a job at PFM mm -hmm. in Charlotte to sit on, on their pricing desk. Uh, and I, I went there for an interview and it was sort of like, oh, you love municipal finance. And you just said yes. I'll hire you. And we just, you just said yes and nodded. Uh, and I was like, you know, municipal finance, revenue bonds, general obligation bonds. Uh, and, I, and really in the back of my mind, it was like, okay, this is a job in finance. It is progressive to what I ultimately want to do. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think I went down that path and I was learning on the fly on, on what that job would entail. And I ended up loving it, and, and and I got you know such great exposure to. Do you do you, before you continue? Do you feel like you got lucky still getting it? Was it was it competitive, or because you had such that niche background? Do you feel like the job was yours to lose? Like it didn't even matter if you. Uh, it was competitive. I mean, there is there are a lot of very credentialized people mm -hmm. who work at PFM still today. I mean, it's incredibly smart people. Can you can you explain uh, to the listeners? Can you explain to them what the pricing debt, did you end up working at the pricing desk? Yeah, so, so PFM advises states and local governments on capital projects, and that's where I started. And sitting across the table from an investment bank, they hire a PFM to advise them on that process, on selecting an underwriter for a financing on, and in some instances, advisors for really, really complicated investment banking type transactions. Some of them have played out publicly. 
uh, in in recent years. You know, so are you are you on the side of the, you're on the side of the governments? You're like the advisor for the governments, and then exactly. the other side is the banks. Exactly. So so we basically we knew the municipal bond market, mm-hmm. and we would advise those cities uh, leading up to the the pricing or underwriting of a, a major debt offering mm-hmm. and advise them on the pricing. And when you're talking about basis points on a $3 billion state of California geo deal, you know, those basis points matter. So we were the ones that were in tune with that market. So and, I did that for a couple of years, mm-hmm. was starting to, you know, it was, it was a fun job. I learned a lot about a lot because I saw, PFM is by far the largest player in that space. Mm-hmm. And I saw a lot of deals across the board. And then they moved me off the desk to more of an advisory role in Los Angeles. So I did that for about a year. Tell me how that changed, how that changed the day to day from price. So it went from being in tune with the market to really working with investment banks on the life cycle of a deal and, and working with municipalities on coming up with transactions. So like I alluded to, a couple of sports related projects where you're a municipality trying to figure out, okay, this sports team needs X amount of dollars to build a new building or they're going to leave. Mm. How do we come up with that? How do we come up with, with $300 million for Hennepin County to contribute to Minnesota twins target field? Got so it. looking at all of the options that are available, the different financing tools and mechanisms and negotiating a partnership with the team. But at this point, I'm, I'm advising state and local government, not yet advising teams. Now we're all at the table together trying to, to get something done. Mm-hmm. But in this process and, and working with other just general capital projects, toll roads, general obligation deals for you know, general state purposes, I learned how cities, counties, states, um, other public entities uh, finance these types of projects. And the other thing I spent a lot of time was, you know, early in the the 2010s, there was really the the onset of the public, the real public-private partnerships where you're bringing in a third-party concessionaire, the large infrastructure funds, the Sintras and Transurbans and Skanskas of the world who are entering into long-term concessions with uh, states, local governments on various different things. So if you drive through the state of Texas, you're paying a toll. You're probably not paying that to the state of Texas. You're, you're paying it to Sintra, a Spanish infrastructure fund. Mm. So that was big in the, in the early 2010s. I spent a lot of time advising states on those concession deals with infrastructure partners. Fair. And then ultimately got a call from Goldman saying, hey, you've been doing this stuff on these projects for governments. Do you have any interest in, in leveraging that knowledge to advise sports teams on getting those dollars for those projects? And, and on a number of other things, but that was really the, the institutional knowledge that brought me to Goldman. Can you tell me a little bit about, so you, you mentioned you were at the table with the sports teams in the state municipalities and then the banks also i'm trying to understand like the interplay there how complex those negotiations must have been because you have like multiple in, you know competing Plus. interests and different it's it's got to be really almost incredibly challenging to get some of these deals done were, were you 
did you learn a lot about like how that whole process, I assume you did, but. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, you're, you're spot on. There is the, the, the technical complexity, which is important, but, you know, fortunately there's a lot of really smart people in the room usually, and you can, you can work through those and, and how it looks, but even more than that, there is a, a political complexity, you know, these, these sports projects and what are viewed as subsidies for wealthy sports team owners, right? the public does not always have aligned perspectives on what that should look like. Right. And that is the more complicated part is, is telling that message to your community and, and we did that a lot and I, and you know, I was part of it a lot more while at Goldman. Um, but that is the really, really complicated things because as much as you, you know, in, in real finance, I think if you kind of know, if I do this, this will happen and you can, you can draw correlations relatively easy more often than not. They're wrong, but within orders of magnitude, like number of jobs, say number of jobs kept in the community, number of all that stuff, yeah. the economic, when you start to try to, to explain something really, really complicated to a broad base of taxpayers. Yeah. It's, it's very, very difficult. And that's why these things play out so publicly and they always do. And they quite frankly, always will is because there are some people who just fundamentally don't agree with the approach. Uh, you know, I, I go back and forth and, you know, I truly, truly believe that in most of these instances, it is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do for taxpayers. It's the right thing to do for communities and politicians, but telling that message is hard. Fair. Okay. So was Goldman on your radar before you got this call and, or were you looking at other investment banks or other, because you, know, you were you were at PFM for a good number of years. I know you wow. had moved out to LA, and it sounds like you were doing interesting work, and you'd kind of changed your position there, so probably kept it a little bit fresh. But was there at any point had you kind of started thinking, "Hey, it'd be great to be on the other side"? Or um, yeah, I probably started thinking about that six months to a year before I actually did it. Okay. And you know, when I went to to LA at that point, it sort of reset me in terms of wanting to to leave and on some level i felt at that time that i had some type of obligation to pfm uh, i think my views are a little different now than they were at that time so i went there and i said hey, i have to be here for, for a bit you know they moved me out here and how have your views changed what do you mean by that like now you would just jump <laughs> yeah now now i wouldn't put that into to, to context whatsoever uh, unless i was legally bound to stay there is that because you're more cynical now or tell me what, <laughs> tell me why? Uh, you yeah, yeah, I think you used the perfect word. I would say that I am more cynical now than I was at that point in time. You know, I, I still never want to burn a, a bridge, ruin a relationship. You know, it, the world that I live in, the world of sports and entertainment uh, is very ancestral. I can't burn a bridge in this industry um, right. because... I think it will come back to haunt me. There are some people who can, uh, and they're, they've got the personality to do it and still be okay. But you know, that's just, I'm a simple Wisconsin man at my heart, my core. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I realize now more than I realized then that it's a business. Every day I show up, it's a business. It's a business to me. It's a business to my boss. It's yeah. a business to the people below me. And 
I have to keep that in, in context as much as sometimes I don't want to. But I, but you have to weigh that with at the end of the day, even though it's a business, these are all people. So and you have to people like people. Fair. Okay. So you had a great run at PFM, almost four and a half year or four and a half years, and then Goldman just calls you up one day. Tell me how that. I mean, you worked across the across the table from them. So was it just so you? the uh, managing director on the Goldman Syndicate desk who I developed a relationship with through my my days mm-hmm. at P- on PFM's pricing desk? Uh, he reached out and said, "Hey, we're doing some some off cycle recruiting for an associate. Is that something you'd be interested in for the syndication desk? No, for banking. For banking, yeah." And the short answer at that point in time was yes. I mean, Goldman was never on my radar, certainly you know, through college uh, and even when I started my career and then I you know, learned a little bit more, a little bit more, uh, and then it, it becomes what Goldman is. Uh, and it's like, oh my goodness, there's an opportunity. And when I did leave PFM, it's, it's funny, I went there for a super day. There was, there was one opening, I think they interviewed like 20 people. Mm-hmm. And there were two separate groups in conference rooms and I walked out after mine into the conference room to grab my bag to fly from New York back to LA. And there was a counterpart of mine who sat in San Francisco uh, at PFM also in the room. <laughs> and it was a sort of awkward thing. And I told him to call me when he was heading to the airport. So he called me and this is, this is one of those things where I just think about relationships and how, how wildly important they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only two people who knew that I was in New York at that time were my mother and my former boss uh, at PFM. Yeah. Yeah. Still back in Charlotte and who was a very, very well respected um, in his space and they actually asked me a direct question because PFM is the largest advisor in the space. Goldman and all the other banks that participate in municipal finance really, really care about and value the PFM relationship because they advise right. state governments on the bulk of large scale capital projects. Uh, and they asked me like, how would, how would PFM feel if you came here? And I told them exactly. I said, the only two people who know that I'm here are my mother and Mike Mace. Uh, and that that really really resonated with me. at that point i'm mike mace who still advises the the 10 largest uh, public utilities in the country mm-hmm. uh, he knew and that meant a lot to them so my counterpart calls me on the way to the airport and they said they asked him the exact same question after i had just answered call my boss call the person you care about the most Right. He'll tell you that he is supportive of this. You don't have to worry about damaging the relationship. My counterpart answered the same question when they asked if they could call Mike. And he said, absolutely not. <laughs> I was just fortunate that I felt comfortable enough in my seat. I learned a lot from, from Mike as a person, as a business professional. But I was fortunate that I told him and I had a conversation with him. And he was supportive of me doing this if I had the opportunity. And he worked at Goldman before he went to PFM. So you you were comfortable enough to have that conversation, even though you were across the country. Yes. From him, you gave him a call, a courtesy call, to let him know that you were going to go in for this opportunity. To, to even before that, to ask him if I should. Got it. Uh, and he was very supportive of it. And he said, "You absolutely should pursue it." 
But the fact that I had that, and don't get me wrong, there are other scenarios where you can't have that conversation. You, you still had to beat out another 19 or 18 candidates or whatever it was. Were there most, were there a lot of MBAs there? And is this investment banking um, group, this global sports finance, is this? So it's, in with, it's within public sector and infrastructure. Public sector, got it. Okay, so it's the public uh, public sector infrastructure group. In banking. Whereas you know that group is it's it's a little different than the other groups within within PSI in the sense that you know all of the other people that sit within PSI, yeah, work with advise and, and underwrite deals for people who have access to the tax exempt municipal bond market. Mm-hmm. My clients did not; they're all private sports organizations. Got it. But on on some of these projects for stadium and arenas there was a, a component of public financing in a lot of them, not all of them. Uh, so that was very, very important is, is doing these, these public private partnerships and being able to speak the language. And that was the sole reason that that group sat within PSI. Got it. Okay. So you're, tell me when you, I, I'm, a, I'm surprised he didn't call you right away while you were at the airport. Uh, well, he, he went, cause he had to go through his super day. Okay. I went through mine first. And as I was leaving, he was coming in for like the second half of the Super Day. He called me and they, he said, hey, they asked me if what Mike would say if they knew I was here. And I said, I, I would not be comfortable with you asking him. So it was the exact opposite of what I said. And I think that was very great is with him, there's a level of, uh, I don't know what the answer is. With me, I've got a, a direct reference from the one individual that they probably care about more than any other individual as, as an apartment. More than an associate hire, they care yeah. about that relationship a lot more. <laughs> but the room, the room was was I mean it was for an associate role. It was post MBAs mm-hmm. and it was other people within public finance. You know that that world's a little bit different in that you're not going to go to to HBS and learn about the municipal bond market. Right. And that's just not part of the curriculum, and for you know in some instances obvious reasons, but it's just not. So a lot of times to get that level of experience, you can't hire from business school. You hire from, from other shops, unless you're associates from, from middle market shops. And, and that's really what all of the, the bullet bracket banks do that, that play in that space. That's helpful. So you're there for a really long run and you get promoted yes. to VP and all that good stuff. Tell me what it was like to, to work there in, in this group. Was it exciting? A lot of, I assume you're meeting with, Sports, sports uh, owners and wealthy. As a, as a sports fan, you know, this was never part of my master plan. So I'm in it and I'm doing exactly that mm-hmm. is, you know, due diligence meetings and I'm, I'm traveling the world and, you know, you start to schedule your, your business meetings when there's like, there's a game. It's like, oh, it's, it's a Thursday in the spring and I've got to go to Sacramento. I'll pick... I'll pick the day where the Kings are playing the Warriors and, and I'll, I'll go to meetings that day. Yeah. It was a, as a sports junkie. I mean, I had access to sports that I, I never knew existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just really, really cool thing and experience. And, you know, after a year or two, I, I sort of realized when other people were thinking about, okay, what's next? I've got, I've got the Goldman credential. What's next? Mm-hmm. I very much realized that, I wanted to continue to work in the business of sports uh, because it was just personally fulfilling and fun for me. Mm-hmm. That's why I stuck around a lot longer than other people would because 
I knew I wanted to stay in sports and, you know, that's a, it's harder to go from sports banking to sports, whatever that means afterwards than it is to go from, from TMT to right. name a, name a, a fund. You know, that is a natural, easy progression. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit harder in sports just because there, there aren't opportunities and it, it, that ecosystem doesn't exist in, in the same way that a lot of other finance does. So talk to me. So you were hanging around, you got promoted after how many years from associate to uh, three years. And then I was VP for three for three and kind of coming up on that third year as a VP, were you uh, starting to look around? Were you always in conversations to see, you know, what was, what was going on? I know you had mentioned how this latest transition happened because you mentioned, Hey, I'm interested in moving back to the Midwest, but tell me, was that just like completely random or was there, were you intentionally kind of planting seeds? <laughs> um, no, I'd, I'd started to think about it and, and my wife and I had sort of a, a short list of, of places we wanted to live and you know, we've got a two year old. So mm-hmm. you know, we wanted, you know, the right place to, to raise our daughter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is that fine line, you know, as you build a, build a relationship and some of my good friends would say, Hey, what do you want to do next? So well, I'd like to own, I'd like to work for an organization that has multiple sports interests and wants more or wants to, to invest and do other creative things in the business of sports. And a lot of people say, oh, that's great. You know exactly what you want to do next. So why don't you just do it? I said, well, there, you know, there are 10 of those jobs. I know <laughs> all of the people that have that job because they're my friends. And so that was sort of the tricky part is I, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But then I, I sort of realized that I, I didn't want to rush it because I kind of knew what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I was enjoying what I was doing at Goldman. You know, there were things I didn't enjoy about it. I was traveling three to five days a week to really, really great locations. And you try to tell people, oh, I was in, I was in Rome and then LA and then San Francisco. I'm like, oh, that's so great. So you have to remind them that a conference room in Rome and a conference room in LA and a conference room in Columbus in New York, they all look eerily similar. Yeah. Um, but so I was you know, at that point, traveling, I'm, I'm you're traveling. You're What's tra- that? You were traveling a lot and that was five plus years of just on yeah. the Okay. Which is cool. You know, you, you get your, you get your status and your concierge key and that's cool. Uh, but then you realize, you know, one of the hardest parts for me when I, this is a true story, the personal story. Uh, when I really started a conversation with the Haslam family, uh, I missed my daughter's first steps. I saw it via video sitting on the tarmac on a flight to, to Oakland mm-hmm. and I missed it and I was just crushed. Mm-hmm. And that's when I kind of realized that I, I actually need to, to do something else, but I, did, I still didn't want to rush it. Yeah. So the, the, the passive comment that I made to my now boss was a little more direct from my perspective. I think he, he received it passively. Yeah but it was given maybe 50% passively, 50% directly. And there's a, there's a colleague of mine uh, who has become a really great friend who, who used to be a client when I was at Goldman, uh, Ted Taiwong, who was uh, an associate at Proskauer, uh, which is by far the largest sports law firm. They represent the NBA and the NHL and Major League Soccer. Okay. Gary Bettman and David Stern are both former Proskauer attorneys. Uh, and he went from from Proskauer in New York to to now being the general counsel of the Cleveland Browns, and he and I had had a couple conversations about that transition for him. And 
you know, just hearing him talk about how great it was to go from, from New York City to a middle market city in the Midwest and work for a sports team. And, you know, that was, that was pretty cool to me. So he and I had some, some, some conversations as, as that process was going on and that got me really excited. And it was what I was looking for professionally. It was, you know, they own a, an NFL team. They own now an, a major league soccer team. They're building a new stadium, There's real estate development. They want to invest in other businesses in and around sports. Like that's really cool for me. They all think I'm smarter than I actually am. So, so they let me do cool stuff. Um, so it's, you know, looking, I, I was ultra selective and I'm, Thankful I, I was at one point in time, a client of another sports team, an NBA team reached out to me and asked me if I had any interest in joining them. And Doing something similar, like actual strategy and acquisition type work? Or? Similar-ish. Um, it was owned by some pretty hardcore finance people and, and a lot of their sports strategy and interests were run out of their family office, not necessarily the team. And that was one of the big issues for me is being at the team, am I going to get the opportunity to do the stuff that your family office is doing back in New York? Mm. My worry was that I wouldn't. Yeah. And when you, when you start to get past, you know, after you spend enough years in investment banking, you start to get wired in a certain way that I would admit that I wasn't always wired in, you know, a couple of years from now we get past, building the, the new crew stadium and the, the development and, and rebranding and marketing and all this really, really cool, fun sports stuff. When it comes to just operating a sports team, you know, it's a little less intense and, you know, I don't get to, to flex and <laughs> work all of those muscles that I think I've developed. So this, this idea that sort of indefinitely we're going to be doing cool and new things is really exciting to me. That's awesome. So the majority of, your time now is obviously on new projects. Are you, are these presented to you? Who's going out and sourcing the, like, is it just like you guys have strategic meetings and you're trying, you have like ideas of what you want to do, or is it mostly around the large projects, the stadium projects? And like, there's just so much to do around like the infrastructure around that whole project that it keeps you busy. Or are you looking at like completely other stuff in like the state of Ohio, for example? Um, well, I mean, just outside of, of the, the, like how big is the scope? What's on your plate? Is it like one at a time? Are you looking at like 20 projects all over the place? And, and yeah. so my job is really, my job is stays kind of divided into to three buckets. Mm-hmm. A third of my time is on the Columbus crew and large scale crew initiatives. And that's build a new stadium, finance, a new stadium, build a real estate development around the stadium, finance, the real estate development around the stadium. Mm-hmm. A third of my time is on, on the Cleveland Browns, large-scale Cleveland Browns projects. I do not have any intel as to who is going to be selected as the next GM of the Browns. <laughs> that has gone away from me. Um, but other sort of initiatives and, and long-term planning for the, for the Browns. And then the final third of my job is um, spent building out what we're calling HSG, has some sports group ventures, which is, you know, ventures, I think a little misleading to what we ultimately want to do, but you know, it's, it's an investing arm of the Haslam family that wants to invest in sports, entertainment, health, wellness, or things that, that touch those. And Do those have to be in the state of Ohio or can they, can they be anywhere? No. So we, we, uh, we made, we've, we've got a couple investments and we've got some things in there that may not naturally fit there. So we did, we're doing a joint venture with 24 hour fitness on, on, on Brown's fit. 
uh, a Browns branded gym in Cleveland. A number of sports teams are doing that. So we put that in ventures, but a lot of people yeah. you know, who are in ventures would say that's not what that is. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're doing, I mean, you have your hands in a lot of different things. That sounds a third, a third, a third. Tell me about your team there. Like, are, do you have an analyst or an associate underneath you? Are you traveling? Are you, you're obviously not traveling as much, maybe just between Cleveland and Columbus. A lot, but. I, I know I-71 North and South really well. Yeah, but just tell me a little bit about, um, yeah, like this, your team and, and, and how much is it like financial analysis versus just meetings of strategic meetings, stuff like that. So, you know, it's interesting, and if I was to give a piece of advice to some of your younger listeners, yeah, please, um, or especially anyone who has any interest in, in sports, you know, one of the things that's happening in sports right now is it's, it's really going from, and it started a few years ago, being a real hobby. Um, you buy a sports team because it's cool, to being big, big business, and that's why you see so many hardcore finance and, and corporate guys buying into sports teams is because they view it as an investment and as a business, as much as it's still fun for them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very much an asset that you would just invest in naturally because it makes sense to invest in naturally. Right. So you start to see the organizations changing across the board to, to look more like what a lot of us would, would, would think of as real businesses, real big business. Um, so my job didn't exist. I didn't, I didn't submit a resume for a job. Um, the job was created for me because it was something that they wanted to do, but you know, they weren't necessarily pursuing right. doing that. Uh, but it was sort of the right time, the right place, the right passive equipment, the right passive comment received by the right person. It's like, Oh, this is actually, you might work for a thing that we kind of want to do, but we aren't actually doing. Uh, so, you know, when I came on this past summer, it was just me uh, in terms of a, a strategy right. function that does all of these things. But, you know, fortunately as an organization, we've got a lot of really, really smart people. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of people that, you know, I'm working with every day on all of these different things. And, and some of them are being you know, led by other people. The stadium is being built like truly, truly built day in and day out by uh, a colleague of mine, the, the vice president of operations, for the Browns now for, for Hasm Sports Group. So a lot of really smart people and you know our our vice president of finance and administration is a CPA. He worked at Arthur Anderson. Uh, very, very smart technical person, like I said. Mm-hmm. Our general counsel, you know, comes from from big, big time. So the strategy team sounds like it's just you, but you're, you're just interfacing with a whole bunch of other people that hit the other spots and kind of just Exactly. And, and we, want to, we want to grow it and scale it. I mean, that is the ultimate objective. Yep. But we're still putting pieces into place. You know, we're still learning how to get the, the operational sports things that we own right now to talk together, to talk to each other and, and take advantage of operational efficiencies. You know, M&A 101, which is obvious to me, is you take advantage of those synergies. You don't have to have legal departments from both teams if you can run it out of one. You don't necessarily have to have some of the back office and administrative functions in both places. So we're just figuring out all of that and putting that all together right now and, and trying to fight the urge to move too quickly. Right. But I think ultimately the plan is to, to have a, a, a real team and a real staff next to and behind me but it's you know moving slowly. So I, I I'm a department of one, uh, but like I said, there are there are a lot of 
people around me in Columbus and in Cleveland who are very, very smart, savvy people. So we're sort of in it together. Very cool. it's it's it is definitely unique, but I mean that's that's kind of one of the cool things is I'm I'm a part of the conversation to 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 develop the strategy of what we want to be as an organization and what we want our ventures platform to to ultimately be, uh, and it's really really cool. And you know, sometimes it's it's about the relationships, not you know meeting with the right recruiter at the right time for the right job opening. Absolutely. And that's maybe a little bit different in, in, in sports than it is if you want if you want to go to KKR or Carlisle, it's probably a little more rigid. <laughs> a little more structured, just a, just a touch more structured. Yeah. <laughs> just a touch. But um, so before we call the pod, anything else you'd like to share with the younger listeners? I know you kind of touched on the fact that, you know, it's really about the relationships and uh, that you developed and, and making sure those were strong. But anything else kind of as they're maybe they're in college, maybe they're a couple years out of school and banking and they're really not sure where to go next. Any thoughts? You know, I think there is a level of patience, building relationships, actually building relationships. And I know that's sometimes easier said than done, not networking for the sake of networking, but, but developing meaningful relationships. I mean, meaningful relationships got me from GFM to Golden. Meaningful relationships got me from Goldman to the Haddon Sports Group, um, more so than anything else. Uh, and then there's there's just a level of patience that comes with with that. I, I mean, if you think about, you know, my path to where I am, it is not the traditional defined path. You know, PFM is not the traditional first step into Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is not a traditional first step into you know representing. It's a family who has sports interests and you know those things just happen so even though you may be two years out of college and you don't have that that bold and bragging investment banking job that you want that doesn't mean it's it's gone forever and it also doesn't mean that that's exactly what you need and what you want you know when i started thinking about going i was like well that's i mean that's it right i'll do that and i'll i'll an associate, a VP, and a managing director, and a partner, and I'll just do that. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of realized I wanted something different. And for me, I had to leave the Midwest to, to truly, truly appreciate the Midwest. Same with my wife. Uh, but, you know, it, it sort of takes time. So, so my advice would be be patient, build good relationships. Um, just connecting with someone on LinkedIn isn't building a good relationship. Uh, just saying hi to someone when you see them isn't building a good relationship. You know, know people. and and be patient and have fun. Cool. I think we'll end it there. Josh, thanks so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And uh, I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Cool. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.